Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 185 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Joseph Laycock, an assistant professor of religious studies at Texas State University and author of the nonfiction books Spirit Possession Around the World and Vampires Today. And we'll be talking with him about his new book, Dangerous Games, which explores the satanic panic that surrounded Dungeons and Dragons in the 1980s. And for more on that, you might also want to check out our panel on the history of Dungeons and Dragons in episode 170. And now, here's our interview with Joseph Laycock. All right, so we're here with Joseph Laycock. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Okay, so first of all, just tell us a bit about your history as a Dungeons and Dragons player. Uh, well, I talk about this in the preface of the book. Uh, I think I first learned about the concept of Dungeons and Dragons uh, when I was pretty young. I mean, maybe six or seven years old at a summer camp for gifted kids. Uh, but what we were doing was not actually Dungeons and Dragons. It was sort of a, you know, more of a cops and robbers type of make-believe game. It wasn't until later that I realized this is a real game played with dice and you actually have to do a lot of reading and, and a lot of study to, to, to learn how to uh, play it. Uh, by high school, I was a pretty big uh, D&D uh, nerd, uh, and that continued on into to college when I was involved in my uh, gaming group at, at Hampshire College. Uh, sadly, I have not played D&D in a long time. I think the last time I was able to do that was uh, with a group of graduate students at Emory University, and that must have been back around 2007 or so. Yeah, well, and I mean, you talk in the book about how there was this big hostility among parents and the media toward Dungeons and Dragons. How much did that affect you at that time? So I grew up in in Austin, Texas, which is a, a Austin is sort of a blue dot in a big red state. Uh, but there was still a lot of uh, hostility from conservative Christians towards this game. Uh, and this was I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, so this was uh, really the height of the satanic panic and the fear that Satanists live among us and are abducting uh, children and torturing them in daycare centers and putting subliminal messages into rock music and, <laughs> and, and things like this. Uh, so I was pretty affected by it, and uh, there were a lot of people that I talked to as a kid, adults, uh, who just assumed out of hand that this game was part of some kind of uh, satanic uh, conspiracy. And of course, when you're a kid, you can't just tell an adult, right, so that they're ignorant and that they need to uh, read a book or something, right? Because mm -hmm. it's an unequal uh, power dynamic. So this was kind of my first suspicion that adults were fallible, right? That they seemed that they knew everything, but that they clearly didn't because they thought that this game uh, had something to do with religion and something to do with, uh, with Satan worship. Right. So, I mean, we must be about the same age because I had the same thing. And, for example, when I was in high school, they wouldn't let us play Dungeons and Dragons at school because, uh, I don't know, they thought it was evil or something. And I've said before on the show that as a result of that, a bunch of my friends just decided that they would, you know, it would have been nice to play Dungeons and Dragons at school, but they could just go home and do drugs instead. And it was this really <laughs> counterproductive strategy, I thought, for the school. Absolutely. And, of course, there were campaigns all over the country, uh, mostly led by um, you know, parents to try and, uh, and, and ban it from schools or ban it from libraries. And researching this book, I even found someone who ran for attorney general of Virginia, and his whole platform was, I will get this terrible game out of our schools. Yeah. Well, and there's a moment in the book you talk about when you're a kid and a bully is picking on you. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so you know, when I was in middle school, I had a student who I'm or an older. I'm a teacher now, so I think of them as students, but <laughs> but older and, and larger than me, maybe an eighth grader. Uh, and I think that he had just kind of heard a sermon from his pastor that weekend or something like that about why this game was was evil, and uh, uh, told a friend and I who were talking about the game. You know, you guys worship gods from books, and that's just sad. And we kind of tried to discuss this with him about this is not a religious thing, you know, this is nothing to do with worshiping anything. Uh, but he kind of stuck to this soundbite of you worship gods from books. And at the time, I couldn't articulate why that was such a weird thing to say. Uh, but one, it was very odd that this was being framed as a religious thing. It obviously had nothing to do with with worship. But the other thing that was ironic was, you know, I was at a Christian uh, school but most Christians, you know, know about their God primarily through a book, right? Through the Bible. I mean, a few people, you know, believe that God speaks to them personally, but generally this is a, uh, you know, it's the Christians who are worshiping gods from books, right? Not the D&D players. Uh, so there was a very strange kind of uh, reversal there where I found that a lot of the claims makers were actually engaging in the very sort of behavior that they were accusing D&D players uh, of doing, and it wasn't until much later in my life, when I had a, a background in the sociology of religion, that I was actually able to uh, kind of articulate some of those suspicions that I had as a as a kid. Right. Well, and you're you're now a professor of religious studies, and to what extent does this kind of experiences you had as a kid did that play into that at all? That interest? Yeah, I, I think it did. I, I, one of the reasons that I think uh, games like Dungeons & Dragons are so important is that when you are uh, making models of the world, even if it's not a real world, even if it's a fantasy world with magic and dragons and things like this, it kind of forces you to take things apart and, and think uh, really hard about how things work. Uh, and I think that when you do that, it, it uh, gives you a kind of an ability to think about the world uh, that you wouldn't otherwise have. Uh, so I think that uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons does prepare you to do things like anthropology and, and sociology and so forth. And uh, you know, I know so many professors at this university and at other universities who played a lot of D and D growing up. Uh, I almost never have to explain to another professor what D and D is. <laughs> okay, and so this new book is called Dangerous Games. So how did this book specifically come about? Well, um, this was my, my first book after my, uh, my big dissertation, uh, project. So I kind of, kind of had a moment to catch a breath and, and really write a book that I wanted to write, uh, that was, I was not, uh, working on to kind of prove my credentials to, um, um, the university where I got my PhD or anything like this. And it was something that I wanted to, to work on for a long time because I have had, kind of a chip on my shoulder since about the sixth grade uh, <laughs> about this. And uh, as I talked about it with other academics and other religion scholars, people got really excited and said, you know, you should, uh, you should write this book. Uh, and so the University of California Press uh, was excited about uh, uh, taking a chance on this. And, uh, and that's how it came together. So have you sent a copy of it to that eighth grade bully? You know, I don't even remember his name, um, and I'm sure that, you know, he, you know, people, people mature, right? I'm, I'm sure that he is not still uh, looking for people with weird hobbies to, to, <laughs> to pick on anymore. So, so, yeah, so you've done all this research on this now. So what have you kind of concluded about why some people were so hostile to Dungeons & Dragons? 
Well, I, I think that um, you know one, one book that was really interesting was a, a book by a, a sociologist named Stanley Cohen called Scapegoats and Moral Panics. And a moral panic is in sociology when uh, a society becomes convinced that something is kind of threatening to undermine the society or threatening uh, to ruin it. So in, in medieval times, this would have been, you know, the, the Jews, right, are trying to steal uh, Christian blood. Uh, right now, we have claims like this about immigrants or... Um, some of the more outrageous claims about Planned Parenthood or terrorism or, or things like this. Um, but to get a really good moral panic, right, you need a scapegoat. And the ideal scapegoat is someone who can't fight back, right? Someone who has no actual political power in the society. So when the only people playing Dungeons and Dragons were kids, you know, kids can't fight back. You can make whatever sorts of claims uh, you want. Uh, and Dungeons and Dragons was also useful because it occurs in the imagination. So you can't actually see the, the game. And so these claims makers were able to describe all these horrible scenarios involving torture and worshiping demons and things like this. And, you know, for all you knew as a parent, um, that's really what your kids were, were imagining. So this was very useful for a lot of different uh, types of claims being made. And so one thing I discovered was that the claims change over time. So in the 1970s, when Dungeons and Dragons began, uh, Americans were really scared of cults. That's what we really didn't like, was groups like the Hare Krishnas and uh, the Moonies and these new religious groups that were going to college campuses and recruiting uh, college-age kids. And there was this fear of brainwashing in the 70s. And so that was originally uh, the lens through which Dungeons & Dragons was interpreted. This is a type of brainwashing. It's a cult activity. And then in the 80s, we weren't scared of cults anymore, but now we were afraid of Satanists. And, you know, the cults at least existed. The Satanists are, are basically a, a, a myth. There is no sort of organized criminal uh, movement of, of, of Satanists. Uh, and so it caught, kind of uh, caught up in that. And then by the 90s, it had begun to die down a little bit, um, but it still got uh, revived very easily. Uh, especially after things like the Columbine shootings in 1999. And then it had shifted from Satanists to just this idea of uh, super predators. So a super predator in the 90s was this idea of uh, teenagers who have guns and no conscience and are basically just coming to, to get us. So in the 90s, both Democrats and Republicans promised to protect America uh, from the super predators and this fear of D&D. Of uh, got dragged up into that uh, again. And it still lingers uh, out there uh, even today. So people like Pat Robertson on the 700 Club have still talked about uh, how this is an evil game that's caused people to commit suicide and, and this sort of thing. But I think what's changed is that we're not kids anymore um, and that once people actually have the ability to fight back against these claims, they fall apart pretty easily. So someone else uh, will have to be scapegoated now in, instead of the gamers. <laughs> Well, I mean, one line that I think was really central to this book is you say, this is the primary reason why some Christians found fantasy role-playing games so intolerable. If players can construct a shared fantasy complete with gods and demons, what assurance is there that Christianity is not itself a kind of game? That's, that's right. And, and when I'm making that claim, I am not you know, trying to put on sort of my Richard Dawkins hat and say that religion is stupid or religion is a delusion or that God doesn't exist or, or anything like this. But I think that the critics themselves had that fear, right? The critics themselves began to worry um, uh, that, that their religion, which they had invested so much in, could be something like this, uh, this game. And there are a few cases where you see sort of smoking guns like this. So Patricia Pulling, 
was uh, the, the founder of an organization called BAD, which stood for Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons. And this was sort of the group in the 80s for attacking D&D. And a reporter asked her, you know, it's true that there are gods in these fantasy games, but why would you assume that people playing the games think these gods are real? Why wouldn't you assume that they don't see them as just characters in a book? And she said, well, you know, children believe in God and they only know about him through, you know, the Bible and their imagination. All right. So that was kind of her, her argument. And, and if you turn that on its head, it sounds like, well, you know, then, then it sounds like you're kind of an atheist yourself, right? And, and, and you, you feel that, that uh, there's a kind of foolishness in, inherent in uh, believing the truth claims of, of religion. So I think that by attacking this imaginary game, that was one way of sort of shoving that thought down and not having to think about it anymore. Right. And I just want to emphasize what you said, that if we draw parallels between fantasy literature and religion, it's not necessarily denigrating religion because fantasy literature is my all-time favorite thing in the world. So I, and I take it very seriously. So, you know, for me, comparing something to fantasy is not in any way an insult. Sure. Yeah. I think one, one case where I've been misunderstood is I'm not at any point in this book claiming that uh, fantasy role-playing games are a religion. Uh, but I am setting up this comparison and there's kind of a creative uh, tension, right, by holding religion and fantasy games up side by side and looking at what the similarities are. Right. I mean, one comment in the book I thought was really interesting is that there was a Christian Dungeons & Dragons player who made the point that essentially there was nothing Dungeons & Dragons could have done to avoid this. That I mean, because there's, there's nothing particularly anti-Christian about Dungeons & Dragons. Gary Gygax, the creator of the game, was Christian himself. And basically, if they didn't include any religion, these people would have complained about that. If they included non-Christian religion, these people would have complained about that. And if they include Christian elements, people would complain that it's blasphemous and idolatrous. So there's no nothing really inherent in the game that would have obviated these criticisms. That's absolutely right. So there was a game created called Dragon Raid, which was created as something like D&D, but that would be specifically used to basically teach Sunday school to children where, you know, you get to a door and you have to have memorized a Bible verse. And if you can recite the Bible verse correctly, the door opens and, and this sort of thing. Uh, but that too was interpreted as an even more subtle way of sneaking the satanic agenda into the church. And so nobody, you know, the primary audience for Dragon Raids was, was Christian teenagers and their parents wouldn't let them buy it. So the game failed. So you're absolutely right. There's, there's no winning with these people. Uh, there's, there's no way to convince them that your game is not somehow a, a kind of satanic conspiracy. <laughs> and I mean, one thing that you talk about in the book that I never had never occurred to me before, but you say that in a way, the people who were attacking Dungeons and Dragons were involved in almost their own live action role playing game where they take on the roles of heroic paranormal investigators battling the evil satanic conspiracy in, in much the same way that Dungeons and Dragons players imagine that they're warriors and wizards. That's absolutely right. So I, when, I, when I'm saying that, I'm not talking about just sort of the, the suburban mother who is concerned that this game is unwholesome. But the people that were sort of actively writing books and making claims that um, this, is, this is connected to a kind of global sort of Illuminati conspiracy or that demons can actually possess your children from playing the games. Um, with, with these people, when I began to actually research who these people were, um, very quickly, these were dangerous, uh, unwell people. Um, so um, William Schnobelin has written a great deal on um, uh, the dangers of, of Dungeons and Dragons and has said that he is a former Satanist and for a while was an actual vampire that 
subsisted entirely on on human blood and would be burned by sunlight. I mean, that's that's a pretty extraordinary claim. It makes me wonder who is really uh, losing touch with reality. Uh, another major claims maker uh, had had her medical license uh, revoked because she came to believe that uh, she could diagnose uh, spiritual illnesses and was uh, abusing prescription painkillers. Uh, John Todd, another claims maker, uh, died in a, in a mental asylum. Uh, so a lot of these people uh, actually seem to be constructing these these uh, these worlds where they alone are fighting either supernatural forces or conspiratory uh, forces. And I think that, you know, on some level, we all need that. We all need to feel that our lives matter and the things that we do are, are important. Uh, but I think because these people had an unhealthy uh, relationship with the imagination, they basically weren't able to let the imagination be its own sphere separate from the world of daily life, uh, that their kind of heroic aspirations took the form of uh, conspiracy theories. So I think that a conspiracy theory is basically uh, the, the the fun and the psychological satisfaction of D&D, but without being given its own discrete kind of frame of, of meaning. Yeah, I mean, that was certainly one thing that struck me reading this book is how many of these anti-Dungeons and Dragons crusaders were just dishonest, uh, unethical people. Um, and this extended even to like really bizarre ways in which they would. I mean, uh, did you mention this guy Todd? He uh, he sort of claimed that his he had grown up in in this witch family, and then when it was pointed out to him that he had ripped all this stuff off from the TV show Dark Shadows, he said, "Well, no, it was because I once flew to Hollywood and gave them a diary from my family, and so they actually based the show on my life." This sort of reversal of fact and fiction. That's absolutely right. Yeah, that was that was John Todd. Of course, John Todd grew up watching Dark Shadows, and he also was very influenced by the movie, um, oh, uh, that Lovecraft movie from the 70s, The Dunwich Horror, and said that the Necronomicon was a real book, that he had seen it. At one point, he said the Book of Mormon is based on the Necronomicon. Uh, and unfortunately, some of these claims are still out there because they get sort of diffused. So Jack Chick uh, is this uh, evangelical um, uh, publisher who makes these little chick tracks that you find left at bus stops and things like this. And he famously made this one called Dark Dungeon, which is so po- about D&D, which is so popular uh, that uh, it gets sort of celebrated now at D&D conventions and things like this. But there's a character at the end of that comic who is, says he's a former witch, and that character is based on John Todd. So uh, it's basically a, a cartoon of John Todd with his you know, 70s handlebar uh, mustache and, and everything. Um, so it's very interesting how these really crazy people are able to find someone who will kind of disseminate their ideas, and then they get a little bit more diffused until you don't realize that these ideas um, are, are, are pretty crazy, right? So um, the intense paranoia gets diffused into just sort of a general paranoia. Right. And, and one line in the book that really struck me is you say, they condemn these games because this is the only way they can enjoy them. That's right. So there's also uh, it, this happens all the time, I think, with um, with kind of the the rhetoric of uh, you know kids these days with with their sort of unsavory uh, activities. Um, but there is a kind of delight in talking about uh, uh, how horrible uh, these these games are. Uh, so you know, I think it was William Schnobelin went through. Um, the the Dungeon Master's Guide and the Player's Handbook with really a fine-tooth comb 
and was sort of looking for the most kind of salacious things that, that he could find. And he found some some really weird stuff that I didn't know about playing D&D <laughs> for, for years. So there was some magic item that did random things. And I think if you, you know, there was a one in a hundred chance that it would give you a, a satyriasis, which is sort of a, you know, a, a permanent erection or things like that, right? Things that were obviously put in there as a, as a joke, but they are sort of able to, um, you know, and at the same time that they're, con- they're condemning it, they're sort of vicariously enjoying all of these, uh, all the sex and violence uh, in this game. Uh, there's a great author called Jason Bivens who calls this the erotics of fear, right? That if you're sort of a, a moral entrepreneur, the things that, that scare you and that you claim are destroying society are also very exciting. And so I, I found that going on uh, quite a bit in the rhetoric about uh, why D&D is a dangerous game. Well, right. And one commentator you quoted mentioned that you could do the same thing with the Bible. Just go through it and pick out all the uh, incest and murder and everything like that. Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, uh, you know, there's so many passages from the Old Testament are are absolutely uh, horrifying, right, with people being raped and dismembered and incest and this this sort of thing. But of course, that doesn't mean the Bible is a bad book, right? It's this is the problem of when uh, you you, you take a text and you uh, attempt to interpret it uh, without any uh, awareness of the culture that it's that it's associated with. So this is another interesting connection between the way we talk about religions and the way we talk about games like D&D. Yeah. Well, speaking of all those things, I was really also struck by this. This is an anti-D&D pamphlet, and it claims that D&D promotes demonology, witchcraft, voodoo, murder, rape, blasphemy, suicide, assassination, insanity, sex perversion, homosexuality, prostitution, Satan worship, gambling, and Jungian psychology. And I, the Jungian psychology stands out as sort of odd in that list there. Can you explain to me why Jungian psychology is a bugbear for these people? Well, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think that the fear was that Jungian psychology and the whole New Age is sort of a backdoor to get, um, you know, the ideas of a rival religion sort of snuck in uh, in the form of something else. So I could understand why Jungian psychology was sort of on this list of things that scared conservative Christians or were uh, upsetting to them. I'm not aware of anything in D&D that could be interpreted as Jungian psychology. I mean, Gary Gygax said, you know, I'm, I like, um, you know, tactical battles with swords. I don't like all this touchy feely stuff in my <laughs> role-playing games. I like strategy and, and, and this sort of thing. Some of the games that came about later in the nineties, I think could maybe, uh, have a have a connection to uh, to psychology or the theories of Jung and, and this sort of thing, but I definitely don't see that in in D anD. d So in a way, that just shows how um, this is just sort of using D anD. d as a as a blank canvas to impose uh, all of these other sorts of fears and, and anxieties on. And the the best thing about that list you were reciting is I kept finding different versions of it, and it looks like it sort of got copied from conservative group to conservative group and each group would add new things to it. So the first <laughs> version I found had maybe 12 things. And by the end it had like 87 things where they had kind of found, you know, so they would put satyriasis. Now there's satyriasis. We can put that on the list also. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. So you mentioned the 700 club and that was funny because they mentioned that the, the dungeons and dragons had this monster Moloch in it. And they said, Oh, that that's, uh, that's satanic. And you say that they actually didn't seem to realize that it's from the Bible and that in a way, Gary Gygax and all these geeks playing Dungeons and Dragons knew the Bible better than these Christian groups that were attacking them. 
They absolutely did. I mean, this is a problem. So Steve Prothero at, at Boston University is a religion professor and a, and a public intellectual. Uh, and he said that basically America used to be, you know, one of the most uh, biblically literate countries um, on, on earth, but that now we have uh, a lot of Americans who don't know even very, very basic things about the Bible. I mean, how many gospels there are and, and this sort of thing. And and this is not just um, non-religious people, but Christians themselves, because um, you know, evangelical Christianity emphasizes kind of the the emotional experience of Christianity, not necessarily um, theology or or interpreting the the Bible. So you have this very strange situation on the Seven Hundred Club, where Moloch, who is not you know a, a super important biblical character, but appears several times in in the Old Testament as sort of a rival god. Uh, worshipped by other people living uh, in uh, in the Holy Land. Uh, but the people in the 700 Club have never heard of this, and they have to have this gamer explain to them um, that this is an actual biblical uh, personage. And then um, this only convinces them further that this must actually be a satanic game because this is a real demon, right? Uh, real in, in, in quotation marks. So there's this very strange phenomenon where all of the Christian elements of the game were used as evidence that this was an anti-Christian game. So the fact that there are cleric spells that are biblical miracles, turning sticks into snakes, walking on water, this sort of thing, was all seen as evidence that this is somehow um, against Christianity. So it's the same thing. Gary Gygax really can't win. Uh, (laughs) As much as he is himself a Christian, he can't persuade Christians that his game uh, does not have an anti-Christian agenda. Right. I mean, you actually quote a guy who uh, is warning parents to look out for symptoms of satanic involvement. And the first item on his list is an unusual interest in the Bible. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's very, very strange. And, and I think that this is, uh, this is connected also to this idea to this, this realization that the way that we practice our religion is a little bit like this game and sort of trying to uh, think about it in a way that that makes you forget about those similarities, right? To kind of make it seem more different than it actually is. I don't know if you've seen the Pew Forum uh, survey that came out recently that actually found that non-religious people had the greatest knowledge of the Bible of any religious, like quote-unquote, religious group in the country. Yeah, I have seen that survey. So I think the atheists did the best, and then I think it was the Jews. <laughs> um, and, you know, the evangelicals did did okay, but they did you know, worse than a lot of these these other groups. And that doesn't mean that evangelical Christianity is a bad way to do Christianity or that they're bad people or anything like this. But as, you know, Christianity has moved from being very, very oriented in the Bible and especially the Old Testament, I mean, going back to the 18th century, uh, to today where, you know, I hear from college students every day, right? Well, the important thing is I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. So I don't actually have to read uh, the the Bible. Um, so I think in some ways we, we, we can see that kind of biblical illiteracy uh, in this panic. Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll talk about this line. All hegemonic movements are threatened by play and imagination. Yeah, so so when I say hegemony, right, this is one of these words that college professors like to, to <laughs> throw around, right? But hegemony is uh, basically, you know, controlling, um, kind of controlling the rules of the game or controlling um, society without sort of openly revealing that that's what you're what you're doing, right? So, in, in a way, I think that um, you know, if if you are a conservative Christian movement um, and you want other people to 
share your very kind of specific religious view of, of the world and you want this to be passed on to your children and so forth, um, I think D&D absolutely does threaten that agenda, right? It threatens it because uh, D&D gives people this kind of very radical autonomy to imagine the world in an infinite number of alternative ways, right? If, if the world that you have is the only world that you'll ever know, you can't really question it. But if every weekend you experience a different world with a different social order and a different way of organizing the government and different religions and so forth, uh, then it becomes much easier to question people when they tell you this is the way the world is, this is what you ought to believe, and, and so forth. So on one level, I think that um, uh, some of these Christian conservatives understood uh, that this game is actually kind of empowering and that that is sort of a, uh, a threat to them. Uh, so, in, so in that sense, they were not simply being uh, uh, hysterical, although they were maybe being a little bit dishonest about why the game was so uh, was so upsetting to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this idea that imagining other worlds could lead to social change is not purely theoretical, right? You talk about in history, there's something called the Axial Age where this happened. Yeah, so the Axial Age is more of a way of thinking about things that that, histo- that historians of religion have created as opposed to sort of an actual historical reality. But literature on the Axial Age began when um, uh, a historian named Karl Jaspers in Germany noticed around 500 BC in four different um, parts of the world in, in Israel, uh, you have the, the Hebrew prophets, right? In Greece, you have the rise of philosophy. In China, you have the age of uh, Confucius and Lao Tzu. And in India, you have uh, the Buddha and the expansion of, of Hindu philosophy. So it says these people were not in contact with each other, but around the same time, they all began to get this idea of there's the world that we live in, which is sort of religious because we want the gods to kind of give us enough rain and help our crops grow and this sort of thing. But there's another world beyond this one, a transcendent world, and this is much more uh, important. And so sociologists have said, well, probably that happened because, you know, these societies reached a level of complexity around 500 BC where they could have a bunch of guys just sitting around and instead of working, were imagining things, right, or could talk about um, what, you know, what happens after you die and, and things like this. So the reason that this happens is, is, is in dispute. But what's not disputed is that after these ideas form, um, it sort of hits the acceleration button on cultural development, right? Because then once you have this idea of a transcendent order, whether that's God or um, sort of platonic ideals of, of reason, or in China, the mandate of heaven or, or whatever, people can come up and say, no, 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 the way that we're doing things in this society is wrong, right? It needs to be done this way because we, we know of this better uh, uh, order. Uh, so I think that there's something similar going on with, with D&D, right? And it's not going to be kind of world changing in the way these ancient prophetic movements were. Uh, but, you know, you, you come to think about your life a little bit differently from having spent a few hours imagining to be somebody else. So I found lots of testimony from gamers saying, you know, um, you know, I, I was I was only able to, you know, join the Marines and serve in Desert Storm because I had learned through these games that I could be brave or that teamwork was was valuable. Um, so in that sense, I do think that these games do have a real impact on how people are able to think about their their lives. So I think that's why the imagination is so powerful. Right. And you actually mentioned a couple of cases in the book where Dungeons and Dragons was used for therapy, right? There was one guy who works through his anger and another woman who uh, recovers from depression because the character, she gains confidence through identifying with her character. 
That's right. Yeah. Well, I think one of the most interesting case studies was a someone who had an adolescent who had tried to kill himself, and the therapist found that he enjoyed playing Dungeons and Dragons, and that was kind of his best sort of social outlet. And he played an evil character, uh, a lawful evil character who was trying to, uh, you know, murder this rich man and and you know marry his daughter and do all these sorts of things. And the therapist was actually able to sit down and say, well, why would, you know, why would somebody do that, right? Why would somebody be lawful but evil and why would they want to do these things? And that sort of uh, allowed him to kind of think about his, his own feelings and his relationship to his own family and then he could sort of work it through. And I found that so interesting because the critics of D&D said playing an evil character is always wrong, right? That's always sort of guiding you towards being an evil person. And here it actually seemed to be just the opposite. It sort of gave this person the tools to think about why he was so uh, so angry all the time. Uh, and this actually was an, a much older debate uh, about whether children should be allowed to hear stories that have monsters in them and, and so forth. And a, a child psychologist named Bruno Bettelheim said, you absolutely must read children's stories that have monsters in them. Because when your child uh, begins uh, feeling angry and wanting to destroy things, if they think that they're the only person in the world who feels that way, they feel that they're the monster, right? That monsters and and evil, and even to a certain extent, um, you know, certain forms of violence can be a way of thinking about these uh, these problems and, and coming to terms with them. Right. I mean, so yeah, so people have attributed all these negative consequences to Dungeons and Dragons in various forms. What has been the have there been scientific studies about that? Like, what does actual psychological literature show? Yeah, there there hasn't been, I, I think, great studies on this. But I mean, some of the things that we found out um, through surveys and things like this show absolutely no connection between playing Dungeons and Dragons and criminal activity, or you know, worshiping the devil, or or, or anything like this. Um, there have been some studies on you know, do children imitate violence that they see? Uh, on on television and, and things like this. I think those are sort of inconclusive, although it was interesting when there was one experiment where they controlled for how sort of imaginative the kids were. And in that study, it looked like the less imaginative kids uh, would kind of imitate what they did. In the, you know, they showed them a violent film with a clown, you know, punching a balloon or something. Uh, but that the the more imaginative kids actually felt sad after watching this because they kind of empathized with the characters and had this much sort of more thoughtful uh, response to to what they were seeing. Um, so the, the studies are, are somewhat inconclusive, but there's no evidence to show that, you know, that this game leads to suicide or violent behavior or any of the other sort of negative uh, activities that were claimed during the panic. Right. I mean, you kind of suggest in the book that it's healthy to imagine the consequences of violence, because how else are you supposed to decide whether you want to engage in violence or not? If you don't understand, if you can't visualize vividly what the consequences of that is going to be. Well, absolutely. Right. I mean, our, our whole, um, you know, justice system or our, our, our penal system is supposed to be about this idea that this is a creating a deterrence, right? That people will not want this to happen to them. And so they will not uh, commit crime. Uh, but that assumes a certain level to to imagine, right? If I do this, what will the consequences of that action uh, be? So I do wonder. You know, with, you know, if you've ever watched middle schoolers play D&D, often they say, well, I want to, you know, rob the tavern or something like this, right? And it is a kind of thought experiment of what would happen if you just sort of flaunted uh, the, the laws of, of society. 
I think more often, though, when people claim that this game leads to suicide and things like this, that what was really going on was there were specific cases where there were very obvious factors for why adolescents had committed suicide or committed murder and this sort of thing. But those, uh, those we, we didn't want to think about those causes, and so we attributed to something uh, much simpler. I found so many cases in the 80s that involved children playing with an unattended firearm, right, and ended up accidentally killing themselves. And then afterwards, the police would say, well, you did this because, you know, you were playing Dungeons and Dragons, right? Isn't that the reason that you shot Timmy because you thought he was an orc or, or something like this? Uh, and where it gets really tragic is cases like uh, Patricia Pulling, the founder of BAD, her son committed suicide. Um, from what I could tell, and including in one case talking to someone who, who knew her son, um, you know, he was really furious at his, at his, uh, at his parents and didn't have a good relationship with them. Uh, no parent wants to think they had something to do with their son committing suicide. And so she kind of dedicated her life to saying, my son killed himself because of this game. This game is making everyone uh, uh, commit suicide. And, you know, what she, I don't agree with what she did, but in, on, on one level, I understand it, right? Because who would want to believe that, you know, you somehow failed to stop your child from committing suicide? Of course, you would want to believe uh, that, that it's sort of a game just can, can do this to someone in, instead, right? Yeah, well, and you make the point, too, that it's it's comforting at one level to think there's this evil game that's turning kids into killers, etc., because then that implies that if you get rid of the game, uh, problem solved, right? That, you know, it, does, it, it, it makes the problem seem much less intractable than they would otherwise. That's right. And this is where, you know, evil conspiracy theories um, are actually, in a sense, comforting, because they do imply that as... as Scary as the world may be, at least we ultimately have control over everything. And the reality is that we don't. Um, the, the Onion put out an article recently that said, uh, study shows every form of parenting will screw up your child. <laughs> right? And I'm sure that's, that's true, right? I mean, if, you're, if your adolescent son kills himself, there's any number of factors, right? And you'll sort of, you'll never have that satisfaction of knowing exactly why this happened or what could have happened differently and so forth. But if you can convince yourself it's this game, this game causes suicide every time, uh, then that at least that sort of um, fear of the unknown is taken out of the equation. I think for some people that, that helps them sleep at night. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so another thing I really want to ask you about is you talk about how these critics of D&D would attack Dungeons & Dragons for all these things while at the same time admiring the works of Tolkien and Lewis, uh, which seem very similar to Dungeons & Dragons, right? Could you talk about that? Yeah, that that was one of the weirdest things that I found. And apparently in the original um, Dark Dungeons comic strip, it said, go home and burn all your D&D books, including Tolkien and Lewis. And then I guess later they decided Tolkien and Lewis were okay, and the newer versions of the, the strip don't have that anymore. So that was very interesting, because I do think that the these these Christians who are writing about D&D on some level enjoyed fantasy, right? Because there's any number of you know, theological and political issues they could be talking about. So I think in one level, they're attracted to D&D uh, and, and to fantasy in, in general. Uh, I think they decided that Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were okay uh, because they were explicitly Christian, um, at least in, in the beginning. So I think that's part of it, is that everyone knows Tolkien's Christian. Everybody knows that the Chronicles of Narnia are a Christian uh, allegory. But then they kind of tie themselves in knots saying why uh, Tolkien and Lewis are okay, but things like Harry Potter and D&D are, are bad. And some of them really sort of geek out. So um, one author said, well, 
you know, in the, the Harry Potter books, it's, it's teaching that humans can do magic. Um, but in, uh, in Tolkien, only elves and wizards can do magic and, and Gandalf isn't actually a human. He's actually a Maiar, right? And, and so this is not contradicting, you know, God's natural order and things like that. I mean, really strange arguments. Uh, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure why they felt that that was, uh, uh, worth doing, but I think they sort of started out with, uh, the premise of Tolkien and Lewis are Christians, so they're okay. And then they kind of work backwards from there. <laughs> Yeah, because you say, I mean, the, the idea is that if you open the door and step through into a fantasy world, anything could be waiting for you. And that's liberating uh, for me, but then it's also challenging or frightening for somebody who's more close-minded. And I, I, I think you say that because uh, Tolkien and Lewis are Christian, the implication for these people is, well, we can step through that door and we feel safe about it because we know that Christianity is waiting for us on the other side of that door. Yeah, so I, I think you're right. There's another problem here, which is a discomfort with the genre of role-playing games, because in a book, you can kind of skip to the end and decide, okay, is this a, is this a good Christian message or is this a bad message? But if you just don't know what the outcome can be, that can, that can make some people um, really anxious, right? And of course, most D&D campaigns do not end with, you know, the bad guys taking over the world, but they could. There's nothing in the rules that says that they, that, that can't happen. Uh, and I think that uh, that ambiguity or that uncertainty uh, was also very upsetting to people who might otherwise uh, enjoy fantasy. Yeah. And I think it's worth mentioning, too, that Tolkien himself would have absolutely no patience, it seems to me, for these people. Oh, I think that's that's certainly true, and and probably even uh, uh, Lewis as as well, right? Um, but but Tolkien, especially with his uh, writings on um, you know sort of the, the powers of imagination and, and things like this, uh, on uh, he wrote a, a very important essay on escapism and why uh, uh, sort of using your imagination to escape is something very powerful and and uh, and noble and not something to be mocked. Yeah, I, I think that he absolutely. Uh, would not uh, have anything to do with bad <laughs> if he had lived to see them. Because, I mean, some of the these conservative pastors you mentioned are essentially advancing the argument that if you're trying to imagine another world, that's rejecting the world that God has created, and why are you doing that? Whereas for Tolkien, he had this whole idea of subcreation, where by creating your own world in fiction, you're doing the same thing that God did. And that's a good thing. That's a gift that God has given us, the ability to create these worlds. Right. So Tolkien said that the imagination is a God-given faculty and, and we should use it. And he wrote this famous poem for Lewis back when Lewis was, was an atheist. Uh, Tolkien converted him, as a lot of people probably know, um, a, a, about the, the imagination as a sacred faculty. And, and uh, Tolkien was not alone in that. There's a long history of Christian writings about sort of the power of, of the imagination as a faculty from, from God. Um, but some of the critics of D&D took just the opposite view and said that, you know, Reality is what God wants it to be, and when you imagine an alternative reality, you are you're offending God, you're disrespecting him. And they took this almost to the point of basically saying, like, imagining a blue fire truck is is blasphemous because <laughs> God wants fire trucks to be red, because that's why fire trucks are red. And this is where this element of hegemony comes in. It has less to do with kind of um, you know, Christianity and has a lot more to do with just sort of making sure everything is stable and everything cannot change. And it actually, these these this fear of the imagination and trying to sort of rein in what kinds of thoughts people are capable of having uh, reminds me a lot of things like uh, 1984. If people have read George Orwell's novel, 
the party is trying to maintain control by making language more and more limited, right? So people will not be able to express uh, certain ideas. And I see some of the attacks on the imagination uh, in, in these anti-D&D books doing uh, something very similar, right? Trying to demonize the imagination so that that, uh, the, that capacity for change is eliminated and taken away. Right. Well, and speaking of, of 1984 and that sort of totalitarianism, that's another thing that comes up in the book is you have the author Michael Ende, who uh, wrote The NeverEnding Story as a response to the Nazi, uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, I mean, you're asking me about when I was a kid, and I remember, you know, I had to be in some kind of after school or something like that, and so my parents could could pick me up because they were professors too, and just watching the NeverEnding Story movie over and over again because that was just sort of like um, that was sort of how they would get the kids to calm down or something <laughs> until our parents came to pick us up, and then when I actually read the book, I, you know, I realized this was a very uh, profound uh, book, and of course the authors. Uh, father had been a, a painter whose work was condemned by the Nazis as deviant art. And so he became very interested in how, on the one hand, imagination is uh, very, very freeing uh, and, and provides this kind of uh, uh, wholesome faculty that humans need. But on the other hand, it can be sort of um, uh, twisted and used by people like the Nazis, right? The Nazis famously used um, kind of romanticism to uh to bestow their their agenda so in the book in the movie the never-ending story the characters keep getting sucked through the nothing and it's just sort of a black hole and you don't see them again but in the book the nothing actually sucks them out into the human world where they become lies so when they're in their own world they're part of your imagination and they're healthy when they're taken out of the world they become lies and they're used by evil people to sell products they don't need or start wars that don't need to be fought and and things like this and I thought that was such an apt metaphor for the way that, um, you know, we all need these kinds of heroic adventures, but some of us can do it in a fantasy game. But for those who can't, because, you know, who knows, they're convinced the imagination is satanic or something, um, they do that in the realm of conspiracy theories, right? Uh, and so I think that uh, people like John Todd, who said that, you know, he was a, a literal uh, satanic witch and things like this, and he's fighting against these conspiracies, uh, is is sort of like uh, the, the the characters who have been sucked through the nothing, right? And and so now they're they're not in the realm of imagination anymore, and now they're being used for for evil. So it was a, a much more profound book than than I expected to find when I when I started reading it. Yeah, because all I really remember about the movie is that there's the dragon that looks like a dog and the guy who eats rocks. That's pretty much what I got out of the movie as a kid. Yeah, so there's this this werewolf type creature that's chasing the the boy throughout the the movie, and uh, so that character in the book is is a werewolf. So he lives in both realms, and in our world, he's just this sort of grouchy human, and in the other world, he's a giant wolf. So he's the only one that really can see the whole picture and can see what's what's going on, uh, and so he's sort of um, boasting about how great it is that all these, these imaginary creatures are going to get killed and they're going to be used for evil purposes, uh, back on, uh, back in the, the human realm. It's a very actually kind of chilling passage. Huh. I mean, cause there's this really interesting, when you're talking about the book, there's this really interesting analogy you make where you say that you think that the imagination is like a muscle. And because, cause the imagination is always portrayed as the more you imagine things, the more you might lose yourself in what you imagine. But you say really the more you exercise your imagination, the more you develop an ability to distinguish what's imaginary from what isn't. 
I think that's that's right. And there's some studies suggesting this. So there's a psychologist at UT who primarily studies how children are able to discern the difference between things, between real and imaginary. And she says, actually, by a pretty early age, kids can distinguish real things from, from imaginary things. Um, but I, I think that, you know, if you, some people are not comfortable with role-playing games, right? That, that there, there's a discomfort there that I don't think I could manage being able to imagine both the real world and this alternative world at the same time, right? But people who can handle that, who can handle role-playing games, often will say, well, that was really fun. Now let's do an alternate reality game where it's not even announced that it's a game, right? But we can kind of do this, these sorts of really advanced things on, on the internet that involve trying to sort of create a confusion about whether this is a role-playing game or, or not. So I, I see on the one hand, some people going further and further along this and, and getting really, really good at being able to, in their mind, maintain these different frames of reality all at the same time. And it's fun and it's a source of, uh, of pleasure. And on the other hand, I see people that, you know, they don't really even like to, to read a, a fiction book, right? <laughs> that's kind of, uh, that's kind of disturbing to them. Um, so, so I do think this is true that, that, Instead of getting sucked deeper and deeper into your imagination, I think the more people uh, play these kinds of games, um, they, they develop a new capacity uh, for thinking about things uh, that they wouldn't otherwise have. So this, this is another way where I actually think that role-playing games are, are very empowering and actually have a lot of social significance. Right. And you kind of quote Karen Armstrong and Peter Bircher to the extent that that there's kind of different layers of meaning and there's things that are literally true and have meaning and there's things that are literally not true and have no meaning but then there's also things that are literally not true but have meaning and that the more biblical literalist mind frame has trouble realizing that this middle ground exists between the two yeah that's that's right so i have a chapter talking about how the imagination became dangerous so karen armstrong is a very popular author on religion and she was a nun for a while um, but she came up with these terms, mythos and logos, and she said basically human beings uh, need two different kinds of knowledge, right? So logos is basically science and knowledge that is objectively true in a scientific and historical sense. And, of course, we need that to develop technologies and cure diseases and, and this sort of stuff. But the humans also need uh, a different kind of knowledge, which she calls mythos. And what mythos can do is it can answer big questions that science can't answer, right? How ought we to live what is the meaning of life? What does it mean to be a human being? Right, This sort of thing. What happens when we die, which I think a lot of people would say science cannot ultimately uh, answer. Uh, and uh, so, so she sees the rise of fundamentalism as basically sort of throwing away uh, uh, mythos, right? Uh, so an attempt to take a text like the book of Genesis, which on the one hand is an account of how the world came to be, which we could interpret historically and scientifically. But much more than that is this great story about what it means to be human and what your relationship to God is and what goes wrong when humans think that they could become like God. And it sort of has this much kind of deeper uh, meaning. Uh, but what, that when the fundamentalist movement occurred in the, uh, really the, the 20s is when it went underway, they said, no, 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 no. Genesis is true in a historic and scientific way, or it's just worthless, right? So we've got to prove that the earth is only 6,000 years old and, and this sort of thing. So I think that that move to begin thinking about the Bible as having only one meaning, whereas historically it was understood that the Bible has 
you know, a, a wealth of meanings, right? There's, there's many ways to interpret it. I think that that kind of um, set a certain Christian culture down the road to where uh, they had this really bizarre relationship with the imagination and came to see the imagination as something dangerous instead of something positive and, and divine that the way Tolkien saw it. Yeah. Okay, I also want to, really want to ask you about this quote. So you say, a number of scholars have suggested that in a secular age, fantasy role-playing games are a kind of substitute for the sense of enchantment once provided by religion. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Mircea Eliada was this uh, famous um, historian of, of religion in the, in the 60s and created a lot of the, the terms that are still used in religious studies today. And right before he died, he was really interested in... Um, you know, things like Marvel Comics. He was really interested in the idea that Thor had become a comic book character. Uh, and he said, you know, we can supposedly we're becoming this more secular uh, society. But he said people still need these kinds of epic stories. They still need heroes. Uh, and if they can't get that through their religion, they're going to get it through movies and novels and things like this. Because humans cannot live uh, without that mythos, right? Without some kind of uh, imaginative source of, uh, of meaning. Uh, and, and so in some ways, I think that's true. I think that, uh, for people who, um, you know, are, or would say, well, I'm, I'm, uh, a, a nun, right? So in more recent sociological surveys, have more and more Americans are saying, I have no religion. Um, there's a lot of literature suggesting that fantasy role-playing games or Star Wars or things like this can kind of take on some of the work that religion used to do. Not in the sense that people think that, you know, uh, Anakin Skywalker is a real person or something, uh, but that these stories kind of give them that sense of psychological fulfillment that in other cultures might have been uh, fulfilled by, you know, hearing stories about the lives of the saints or, or something like this. Right, because I mean, I would certainly put myself in that category. I'm a atheist, a philosophical materialist, but I, as I mentioned, I mean, fantasy fiction is one of my all-time favorite things in this world. And I do feel that I don't know, there's just maybe a, a part of our brain that's tickled by the numinous and the transcendent, and fantasy literature allows us to to tickle that part of the brain without the, I would say, a lot of the negative consequences that flow from believing that these stories are literally true. Right, and, and how crazy would it be for a Star Wars fan to say, well, I can prove that this really happened in a galaxy far, far away, right, a long, long time ago. But if I can't prove that, then no one should watch these movies because they <laughs> have no value, right? And so that's, right. that's what someone like Karen Armstrong would say is kind of the tragedy of fundamentalism, is that fundamentalism, um, instead of celebrating all the sorts of values that are unique to religion, capitulated to the materialists and said, okay, yeah, material, it's materialism or bust. That's the only thing that matters. All right. So, um, so we're almost out of time. Just talk about, Joseph, uh, what kind of reactions have you gotten to this book? Do you get uh, letters, angry or otherwise, from people in response to it? Uh, I, don't, I don't think I've gotten any angry letters. I mean, I do think that this debate is, for the most part, over, right? I don't think that anyone is going to kind of raise a serious charge that, that D&D is a dangerous game. Uh, except in very kind of sheltered um, churches and, and and things like that. Um, but uh, you know, I've, I've mostly gotten a lot of uh, mail from people who said that they they feel kind of vindicated uh, by this, which is partly what I was trying to do to kind of you know avenge my sixth grade self <laughs> being told I worship gods uh, uh, from books. Uh, I think the only people who've been upset are people who fundamentally misunderstand the argument of the of the book. So I, I have had some people that thought I was trying to say. Um, if you play D&D, &D, that is your religion, 
right? And so you can't be an atheist and a D&D player, or you can't be a Christian and a D&D player. And that's not what I'm saying at all, right? Um, religion is really a second-order category, which means we religion scholars sit in our offices and we look at stuff around the world and we kind of decide, does that seem like religion or, or not? Um, so I think that's been the, the most kind of the biggest critique of the book right now is, is that misunderstanding. I'm not telling people that this is a religion. It's, it's a comparison. And it's sort of looking at what, what shakes out when we uh, line up religion and, and D&D together. Right. And so, uh, so what's next for you? Do you have, are you going to write any more about the subject or do you have another book you're working on or what's going on? Well, right now I've, I've gotten very interested in, in what I call political Satanism. Um, so it is an epitaph at the, one of the, the first chapters of the book, um, from this, uh, this incident at Harvard where, um, this group called the Satanic Temple tried to organize a black mass as part of a cultural display. And an ethics professor said, you know, is, um, this may be tasteless, but this is an important part of kind of freedom of speech and we should go ahead and do it. And then he said, and if you guys say I'm only taking this position because I'm secretly a Satanist, I will blame this whole <laughs> thing on D&D, right? <laughs> um, so I, I am very interested in this figure called Lucian Greaves who wants to, um, you know, who, who tried to erect a monument to Satan in front of the Oklahoma Capitol. Uh, and this has become kind of a big movement of people basically trying to claim the rights that have sort of always or have, have generally been afforded to to Christians, uh, but as Satanists, right? So their argument is, if you're letting the Christians do it, we want to be able to do it too. We want to have Christmas displays. We want to have monuments and this sort of thing. And so I think this is actually a very interesting cultural moment in kind of, you know, how we interpret the First Amendment. Uh, claims that America was founded as a Christian nation and, and, and this sort of thing. Uh, and I'm, I'm sort of well positioned to analyze that because I've done all this research on satanic panic, right? Because in a way, um, the satanic panic of the 80s created Lucian Greaves, right? He's part of our generation and grew up with all of those uh, stories as well. So, so if Christians are annoyed by his antics, they kind of created him, right? <laughs> He's kind of coming home to uh, uh, to roost. So that's, that's sort of what I'm working on these days is my next project. All right. So unfortunately we're all out of time. I mean, there's so much stuff in this book we could talk about. I, I was saying before we got started that there's a whole section on white wolf and the vampire, the masquerade role-playing game and the real life vampire movement and Therian tropes. It's all sorts of just crazy stuff. Um, but people, you should go out and check out this book. If you want the full story, it's called dangerous games. What the moral panic over role-playing games says about play religion and imagined worlds. And the author is Joseph P. Laycock. So, Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great. And that was our interview. So, big thanks again to Joseph Laycock for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Miss Pod and Snow Mossop, who both live in the UK. Miss Pod writes, Great insight into sci-fi creators. This is a must for either fans or aspiring writers slash screenwriters of sci-fi. There's just so much insight into the way the individuals and industries producing sci-fi fantasy films, games, and books get their projects off the ground. I love this. So big thanks again to Miss Pod for that great review. Special thanks as well to Stephen Klotz, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed, 
We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.